everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by the 2016 Out of Bounds Comedy Festival. And submissions are now open for the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas. Out of Bounds is Austin's longest-running independent comedy festival in its 15th year, featuring the best in stand-up, sketch, improv, and theatrical comedy from across the globe. Out of Bounds is accepting submissions for a variety of acts until 11.59 p.m. Central Standard Time on April 30th. Visit www.outofboundscomedy.com for more information. That's www.outofboundscomedy.com And we're also sponsored by the Baltimore Improv Festival. Like most people, you've surely asked yourself, how can I make my dreams come true? How can I spend July in Baltimore? Well, search no longer. The 10th annual Baltimore Improv Festival runs from July 25th through the 31st, sponsored by the Baltimore Improv Group. Come play in front of some of the largest, loudest, most supportive audiences you'll find at any festival in America. For more information and to register, go to BaltimoreImprovFestival.org. That's BaltimoreImprovFestival.org. And don't forget that time is running out and spaces are filling up for my award-winning Artist Low Comedy Summer Weekend Intensives. They'll be offered on the weekend of July 30th and the 31st and August 6th through the 7th. I limit this to 14 people, so you better act fast and go to my website to register at jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. Okay, all right, we've got another great episode of Improv for you today, and our guest today is Tim Kazarinski. He is an actor and screenwriter. He was a cast member on Saturday Night Live from 1980 to 1984. He co-wrote the film About Last Night and is probably best remembered as Carl Sweetchuck in the Police Academy movies. We talked to Tim about why he started taking improv classes at the Second City in the first place, how he got hired for Saturday Night Live, and making his Broadway debut last year in an act of God with Jim Parsons. Before we get to the episode with Tim, uh, I am now back in Chicago after a week in Los Angeles where I got uh, five uh, upcoming episodes. We got some really great guests coming up in the future. And I also took in some meetings for the possibility of turning Improv Nerd into something in a digital format or possibly even television. And uh, two of those meetings went extremely well. And you know me, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty negative on, on most things. So uh, hopefully you'll be hearing more about that as well. There was a lot of mixed feelings around the trip for me. Certainly it was exciting to be out there and to take meetings and to get these interviews and, and to see friends I hadn't seen in a long time. It was very intense. It was a, a lot of work in a short amount of time. And there was a lot of sadness as I'm grieving the death of my father. And the thing that's been kicking my ass is that I didn't realize uh, how physical grief really is. And I'm tired all the time and I want to take a nap and I'm unfocused and, um, you know, just feel generally melancholy. And some mornings you get up and you're like, oh, this is great. And then by two o'clock, you're just like, I just want to hide in my bed and take a big, long nap. And you're unfocused and you want to be alone all the time. I, I, you know, it's... I guess I'm, you know, I don't know how to do it, actually, and I'm just, uh, I'm just doing the best I can here with it. Um, and this coming Saturday will be the memorial uh, mass for my father, and uh, my brother, and my older brother has uh, said that we can only speak for two minutes each in the eulogy, which uh, I hope I have the courage to go over um, uh, and, and not be, I feel censored, of course I feel censored. And I feel controlled. And so um, I just hope I have the strength to speak from my heart and do what I, I'd like to do and, uh, you know, not get caught up in that craziness because that is just crazy. Um, who's ever heard of a two-minute rule for a eulogy? I, I know there's five of us, but really? Um, you're going to love this episode. I've been trying to get Tim Kazarensky for a long time. He's not only super talented, he's a really, really great guy. Here it is, the Tim Kazarinski episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. 
Tim Kazarinsky, welcome for being on this episode of Improv Nerd with us. It is wonderful to be here. I've traveled all of three blocks. <laughs> uh, now, you grew up in Australia, and you were one of five kids. And at age of 15, you don't even finish high school, and you decide to, to, to come to the U.S. Why did you decide to move? Um, crazy, drunken parents, uh, too many kids in a household. Uh, I was a family of seven. I had an ulcer uh-huh. and a doctor. What was the ulcer from? The ulcer, well, back then they thought ulcers were caused by stress. Mm-hmm. The ulcers were actually exacerbated by stress. We lived in a place that didn't have flush toilets. We had outhouses, and uh, we were in government housing, and so I knew that any time I saw the pipes coming in the, in, the, in the sidewalks that we'd soon be moving on. Because for, for our listeners, what year is this about? 19, well, I was born in 1950. Okay. This was the, the middle 50, 57, 58. Uh, and we, we lived in old U.S. Army barracks for a, a few years. Um, but I, the, my ulcer was actually caused from bad sanitation. The, um, we were always getting, uh, you know, pinworms and infections. And it was... Uh, um, the, the helicobacter uh, virus bacteria that caused the ulcer, but um, you know I thought it was stress, and the, some a doctor said you you know parents are drunks, get out when you can. So I quit school at fifteen and got a job and ran away to America. Now you're very open about talking. Your parents are both drunks. They're well, they're both, both dead. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy now. Yeah. How? What, <laughs> what kind of drunks were they like? When you, you say that, I mean, can you, do you remember something from your childhood? Well, pretty much you have to remember, this was the 50s and early 60s in Australia. Everybody was drunk. It was a very drunk nation. Uh, and everybody had lots of kids because the pill hadn't come along. So there were great hordes of soiled children running around. Um, and you had to entertain yourself. I, I grew up with radio. There was no TV yet. Uh, it came when I was about nine, I guess, uh, and I remember the advent of television. I, you know, I've been around that long. So, uh, but um, there were, you know, my mother was actually. Uh, it wasn't until I was about ten that she uh, became a, an alcoholic. And my, but my father was just. It was a big social thing. It was just everybody's dad was a drunk, and they got, you know, payday. You never saw him. They didn't show up with the paycheck. And so the, your dad would get his paycheck, and then you wouldn't see him for three days. Yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, that's it. With regularity, yeah. And it was, but you just thought everybody's dad did that, you know. And then you move in with your aunt in um, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was that for you to adjust from America, you know, where you were living in Australia to American life? Um, well, I was not, I was ill prepared. I had grown up watching Leave It to Beaver, the Donna Reed show, and, on, and then town. And I arrived in March in Johnstown, PA. I had, it didn't, doesn't snow in Sydney. Uh, I was. I got off this plane on a, the runway of a small air, municipal airport. I thought I was going to die. It was so cold. It was like 20 degrees. I hadn't experienced anything like that. I had a shirt on, and I was literally shuddering. And uh, then the, uh, you know, Johnstown. I hit it. Just it's, Johnstown's famous for the Johnstown flood, and the, they closed the steel mines, the coal mines, Bethlehem Steel, U.S. Steel. It was like massive unemployment, and it was a really depressed mining town where they did slap shot and all the right moves. And you needed, you know, a, a depressed mining town. You, you went to Johnstown. So, and Sydney's so beautiful, and <laughs> Johnstown was like, oh my God, what have I done? And uh, uh, it was it was it was pretty shocking. Uh, but uh, I was there two years, and then uh, I came to Chicago in '68, just in time for the. Democratic National Convention, and it was the I absolutely fell in love with Chicago immediately. It was like, whoa! What was it about Chicago that you loved? Uh, what did I love? Um, the um, I it was that at that time it was you know the ERA, equal rights, you know, civil rights, um, Vietnam War, and Chicago was the center of the universe, which it was again in two thousand and eight. So. It was a lot happening, you know, people smoking weed openly, and it was just, uh, it was the 60s. And it, would, it, and it was a really terrific, exciting place to be. Um, I it was crazy about you. And, step, and consequently, I never left. I've been here, uh, <laughs> it's 48 years, and uh, um, I just toured with Wicked and hit about 16 cities in 14 states, and I still didn't find any place that I liked as much as Chicago. It's, it's, 
And, and when you come to Chicago, you uh, start working for a huge advertising agency, Leo Burnett. And uh, you said you had a fear of presentations. Uh, how how bad was your fear of presentations? Well, it was like Mad Men. You had at Leo Burnett, you had three bosses in suits, and you had a just like stand up with your storyboard and sell your commercial. And I was, I was. You were a creative, right? Yes, I was creative. I was a writer, and uh, I was overwhelmed, and it made me really, really nervous. And I, I could write them as good as the other guys. I just didn't, I was lousy at selling them. So uh, somebody had said, take a Dale Carnegie course or a, you know, a class at Second City and get used to speaking in front of people. So uh, I went to Second City and took a class and it was really fun. And then... Um, Tell me about that first class. Yeah. Do you remember? It was actually, the first one was Joe Forsberg mm -hmm. and the second one was Dell. And... Uh, Del Close and two different st styles, really, really different styles of people. Uh, Joe was, you know, nurturing and motherly, and Del was gonzo, uh, crazy, you know, take off your clothes, whatever. Just he was out of the out of his mind and uh, uh, brilliant. Um, and uh, they, well, they ended up offering me a job uh, on stage. So ba based on taking classes. Yeah, I was in the class. And how, how many classes do you think you took before they offered you something? Three. You're kidding yeah. me. That was the good old well, days. Well, well, but how do you go from, I'm so nervous, I can't make a presentation in an advertising agency, yeah. to improvising on stage? Where, where, where does the, the switch, did the switch go off? Okay, here's the thing for me. Okay. They, they don't have at Second City anymore. They don't have anywhere anymore. Costumes. Now, at the backstage, there were... There were it was cluttered and crowded with costumes, hats. Anyway, I could initially could hide behind sort of a costume and be that person. And that really brought me out of my shell. And the safety of, I never played myself on stage. I was always doing characters. And now, somewhere along the line, it's not cool anymore to wear a costume. You know, and I was, you know, give me a cardigan for a grandpa, a scarf. Give me a Nazi helmet, a Viking hat, a sword. You know, it's just, it was so much fun. And, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, had you been doing characters privately up until that point? Or did you just like, in that class, I'm putting on a, a cardigan sweater and now I'm the, the old man? Yeah, that was, that was a huge bit of it for me. In the, I felt comfortable in the classes uh, enough because you knew everybody that, um, you know, I didn't wear them a lot in, in the, the workshops. And stuff, but on stage when we would do full blown scenes, I would really, you know, costume up at the, at the yin yang, and the it, it somehow became not so cool to you know wear stuff anymore, and with the younger generations. But I I remember at the fiftieth anniversary of Second City, um, the SCTV people came in. They had steamer trunks filled with costumes, wigs, fake teeth. And everybody went nuts for them because they were really tricked out with all the uh, the outfits and stuff. And it was it was a riot. It was fun. So how did you decide to take the job at Second City? Because you you know advertising is really lucrative, and I wouldn't imagine the touring company was paying much back then. No, no. In fact, I didn't tour. They would want me to like take a day off and go to uh, you know St. Mary's or Notre Dame and do a show for twenty five bucks. And I went, "You're kidding! I you know I can't." I can't leave my good paying job to go and do this. So I really didn't tour very much um, until they offered me a, 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 a said to Bernie, you know, if you've got a full-time thing. Bernie Solins. Bernie yeah. Solins, yeah. And when I did take a job there at Second City, it was actually um, out at Chateau Louise, um, I took an 80% pay cut to go and do that. But I had saved up some money and I went, okay, all right, I've got 8000 in the bank now. Which to me was a fortune. It's nothing. I was like... I can, I can take a year and do this, and uh, it, um, I did it, and it was just so much fun. I, I loved I loved being at Second City. What is one of your fondest memories about Second City, or stories? I think the first time, okay, here's where it really hit. Uh, Joyce Sloan, Mama Joyce, had actually, we had this one touring company, but hard to believe, one touring company and the main stage, and she had accidentally booked two shows on the same day. And rather than turn the other show down, they took six kids out of the, the classes and said, you're going to do a show. 
So, uh, so this is before you're hired, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was still in the workshops there. Okay. And um, then we had we went to do the show in front of like an audience of like a thousand. Uh, it, was, it was a very Jewish crowd. I remember it was on the North Shore, and um, we did that same PTA, and I was had to be out sitting in the audiences, pretending I was that the audience was the PTA meeting, and this show went oh it killed. And the audience was screaming, and I was like, it was a complete drug to me. I was like, whoa, this is, this is ridiculous. This is so much fun. And I was literally hooked at that point. And uh, it was still, you know, probably six months later before I got a full-time job there. But I knew that's, that's what I wanted to do. Then when you get that kind of a reaction from an audience, there's, you know, it's nothing like it. And then eventually you, you're on main stage, yeah. which, is, which, is, which is such a huge accomplishment. And then you get hired for Saturday Night Live. How was John Belushi responsible for you getting hired? Uh, I was completely ignorant of this. Um, uh, the new... Uh, Lorne Michaels left Saturday Night Live. Gene Demanian took over. And it wasn't going well. And I was not really aware of this. Um, that... John had told Dick Ebersole, the new producer, that he should go to Chicago and look at me, uh, sort of as the den mother to a group. What did I, he mean by that, den mother? Um, that there's a, in a lot of companies at Second City, there's the, you know, there are different types, and there's sort of one person who kind of tries to keep the group together, stop the arguments, calm things down. Is the, uh, Did you get that growing up in an alcoholic family? Absolutely. As the youngest of, you know, youngest one in the family. And you were the peacekeeper and, Absolutely. you know, dad's angry, let's, yeah. you know. I, I, I soothed everything over. And I did that pretty much at SNL, too. And, um, that, that's, and John said that that was the quality that he, that he should be looking for in me. And so he sent him to look at me. I had no idea that this was happening. He came one night, he saw the show, he left, unbeknownst to me, and then uh, a few months later, you know, came back, and uh, I was actually finished with, I'd left Second City, I was working with John Candy and this show called Big City Comedy up in Toronto, love John Candy. What do you love about John Candy? John Candy, but he's Uncle Buck, he is the, he's that guy, and uh, doing a show for, you know, four months up in Canada with him was one of the great memories of my life, and his wife Rose, and his baby daughter Jen, who is now in her 30s. I, I changed her diapers, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time, a loving, loving man. And uh, so but, I didn't, but you're thinking to yourself, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. Part. I right. was always a writer. I, right. was at Second, I was an ad man. At Second City, I thought, I'm writing on my feet. And so I go back to Chicago. Dick Ebersole comes into town, wants to buy me a drink at the pump room. So I go. Which is a legendary... Oh, I no. mean, it was like, that, that was like, that was the place. It, it was, was the, it was, yeah, it was, right. what is that, that, what's the equivalent in New York? I don't know. But it was the she-she place. And I'm going, ooh, I'm going to the pump room and somebody's going to buy me a cocktail. So did you get all, uh, get in a suit and stuff? Yeah, I was pretty well dressed. Yeah. Okay. I, I, and what are you thinking at this point? Uh, I have no idea what's what's up. And he wants to, he said he wanted to pick my brain. So I would go in there and I'm, I'm drinking like gin and tonics and I'm telling him, well, you know, this Eddie Murphy kid who was, uh, he was a, a, a feature player with Zermania. I said, you got to get Eddie Murphy. You should take him. And Joe Piscopo with the sports guys, like really funny. And I said, you get Mary Gross. Uh, you know, you know, Mary's really. And so, uh, you know, I'm making these suggestions. And I figured I'm a retired, like gone from Second City. I'm a writer and and uh, then he says to me, well, I want you to, you know, be part of the show. And I'm like, woo! And I'm getting a little drunk. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just got hired as a writer at Saturday Night Live. This is crazy. And I, I'm like, I can't wait to tell friends. And, um, and he's, a couple of minutes later, he says, um, do you have your aftercard? And I said, why would I need an aftercard? And he said, well, everybody in the cast has to be aftra." And I said, well, wait, did you say cast? And he said, yeah. Yeah, I want you in the cast. He said, well, why do you think I hired you? I, I said, uh, as a writer. And he said, you write? I was like, my head caved in. I was like, he didn't even know that I wrote. And that's what I really was. I think in my mind, I'm a writer. And I really 
kind of never thought of myself as an actor. Because Second City is writing on your feet. It's a... Remember, George Went and Bernadette Burkett used to say uh, that um, writing is the, uh, that, uh, no, improv is the bastard child of writing and acting. So, but I was, writing was my strength. So I was just completely stunned that he thought of me as an actor. So I'm sure many people in America were as well. <laughs> and after he says that, is there fear that comes up? Is there excitement? Is there, well, maybe I'm not going to take this. I'm definitely going to take this. You call John Belushi. What do you, what do you do? I, well, I hadn't even known about the John connection yet. I okay. found out about that later. I had no idea where this came from. And I just remember driving home in my 1960 Volkswagen, like screaming at the top of my lungs. And I thought, well, I'll call Australia and tell my family. Well, the show didn't share show in Australia. All my family's in Australia. It, they, don't, they don't get that show there. They had no idea what it was about. And so it was like, well, who do I tell? You know, it was kind of late at night. Who can I wake up and tell that I got hired at Saturday Night Live? And I called a few friends, so. And were they excited for you? Oh, yeah. I was, you know, driving up... Uh, you know, up Western Avenue, screaming, you know, the top of my lungs. Whoa! And then you move to New York, and uh, you do the show for th four seasons? Yeah, but I, I remember moving to New York. I didn't really have a, a working suitcase, so I had the suitcase tied up with rope. And it was to feel like, and there was somebody to meet me at the airport. I was really embarrassed, because they were, like, at the carousel. And where's your luggage? And I'm like, holy sh shit, it's like I'm... Fucking Jethro from the, the Beverly the Hillbillies, Hillbillies yeah. with his luggage tied up. And yeah. I remember this kid, the page from NBC, saw my luggage with the rope around. And he was like, what the fuck is this? How did this guy get a job? And he's throwing it in the back of a Lincoln Town car. Yeah, yeah. And a limo. What was the first day like? Do you remember? It's Saturday Night Live? Oh, yeah. I was pretty much shaking and shuddering and uh, just immediately going, oh, I'm not worthy. It's the, it's the Peter Principle. I'm... I failed upwards, and <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty daunting, um, but you know, everybody was sort of nervous and terrified. And Mary Gross was there, and and Mary had worked with you uh, at Second City on the main stage. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and but uh, no, everybody was was scared and nervous. You know, the, Joe and Eddie had had some a little bit of you know experience with Gene Demanian, but the rest of us were. <laughs> Tony Rosado and Christine Ebersol. And what was what was some of you the, the, the high points in terms of uh, things you're most proud of that you contributed to that show? I think probably keeping it alive uh, for others. Um, it had, was kind of going into the shitter. They were down on advertisers, and uh, you know, we luckily you know we had uh, Eddie, to uh, who was a massive star. And he was so, he was like 17. It's ridiculous. I remember after working there for four seasons, they, uh, Ebersol said one night, we're, after the show, we're going to, the, uh, going to Studio 54, which was the big disco. And I was like, whoa, what's the occasion? And he said, what's well, Eddie's 21st birthday? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, he's been on the show for four years. It's like, this is nuts. Uh, he was brilliant, yeah. Favorite character you did on that show? Uh, my favorite was the um, the guru, the uh, having a good time, Vishnu over here, mm -hmm. the man who told the uh, unanswered questions of the universe. Um, probably the most memorable was Dr. Jack Badovsky, the, right. uh, the guy with the diseases on the flip cards. Uh, it actually was going to be Chiron at first, but the guy who ran the Chiron couldn't flip him at the right time, so... He decided just put him on cards and then I'll flip him, I'll time the laugh. So that's how I, it wound up on now, cards. Now, I had interned for a guy, Jack Badovsky, who ran an advertising agency here in Chicago, and he said he knew you and he, you had named that after him? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's my buddy, Jack Badovsky. Okay. He, he had an ad agency, Smith, Badovsky, and Raffle. Which I interned. You inter yeah. interned that? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, he did a lot of radio spots when I was there. A lot of radio spots. Well, Jack would hire me to do radio spots that I was not even right for. And I realized he was casting me because he liked to hang out and make bad jokes and puns. And so, uh, and you know, we go to lunch and we joke around. In fact, I'm having lunch with Jack tomorrow. <laughs> with well, Joel Corey. Uh, another big voiceover guy here. Huge in voiceover. As an ad man with Leah Burnett, I, you know, I used to hire Joel Corey to do voiceover stuff 
And now I'm having lunch with him tomorrow. Well, I remember when I worked for Jack, he wouldn't even audition people. He would just go to a Rolodex and say, call this person in and this person in and this person. Oh, Mona Abood. Uh, he had all these people that he had his stable of. You know, Settlemeyer was a lot like that, too. He knew exactly. Joe Settlemeyer knew you exactly. You worked with him a couple I, times. I did about eight spots with Joe. I wrote the first draft of uh, Easy Money for Joe Settlemeyer. Mm-hmm. Um, what was Easy Money? Easy Money was a movie with Rodney Dangerfield. Okay. Uh, at one point, uh, Settlemeyer threw my script... Uh, at, da- at Rodney Dangerfield's head in New York. We were in Rodney's <laughs> dining room, and he, ch- and he screamed. It would be, for a week, we'd been trying to get Rodney on board to do it the way Joe wanted to do it. Joe, Joe was very much a control freak. I mean, he would literally like place actors and say, this, this is where I want you to move, right? Yeah, they, they were actors were furniture for right, Joe. Right. And, 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 so, and he uh, had a vision of how he wanted this film to be, and Rodney wasn't going along with it. So at the end of a week, I spent a week in Rodney Dangerfield's dining room. He never got out of his robe once. Was he getting high all the time? High the whole time. Okay. Absolutely high the whole time. Just leave every you know hour or so to go to the bathroom. Uh, and, um, but at the end of a week, Settlemeyer threw my, <laughs> grabbed my script, and he said, Joe, you cheap and stand up yeah and this is never going to work and he threw my script the length of the table and Joe ducked I mean Rodney ducked and I missed him he said, hey Joe what's going on hey Bill right. and uh, it it never worked out but the film got made but not with my script now you you know you've been around a lot of people that have you know abused drugs and drinking and stuff like that mm-hmm. over the years for me it never worked how did it work for somebody like uh, Rodney Dangerfield or even John Belushi you know before he died how, how were they able to, to, to manage that, you think? Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work. It doesn't work for anybody, really. Uh, um, there was a lot of cocaine when I was at SNL, too. Uh, you know, it just was everywhere. It was a pandemic. Uh, um, was that hard for you to resist? No, no, I was done. I had, okay. I, I was so old. I did, <laughs> I did my drugs in the 60s. Okay. It was just the pot was so weak. You know, <laughs> Iowa, you know, red, whatever. Yet. I mean, like one joint today was literally like a lid, like an ounce of the the stuff in the '60s. It's so powerful now. It's a, um, but no, I was not uh, uh, a druggie, um, and I got offered it by you know all manner and kind of people. I wish I had a big mayonnaise jar and saved it all, and I could have sold it and put my kids through college, but. Um, I didn't have the foresight to do that. You always seem to me to have to have this, I guess, fatherly quality. Like this, like you are one of the people in comedy that are is very responsible. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I try to show up and be off script and, and do those things and be a little responsible. Well, where did where, how did you learn that? Skill? I think coming from you know the slums of Sydney and like you get this this opportunity. Uh, you know, it's like. You know, Garrett Morris said, America been very, very good to me. Well, that was, yeah, showbiz been very, very good to me. Uh, and and I, I uh, luckily, I was a writer and a performer, and I always managed to find work. I was a screenwriter for 20 years with Denise DeClue. Um, you wrote about last night wrote together? about last night, and My Bodyguard, and For Keeps, and uh, The Cherokee Kid. We got very lucky as screenwriters, and... Uh, uh, we had a terrific career. And Did writing help you become more disciplined? Like, I have a deadline. I got to hand this in. There's a certain format to the screenplay. Yes, everybody says, "We know what's the the best thing about having a writing partner is knowing that somebody else is going to be there at nine o'clock and you have to show up." Uh, that was the, the the hugest huge thing. And Denise was a terrific writing partner, uh, but you know, the, it's great when you both have to be there at nine and staring at. You know, the blank sheet of paper. What made her such a good writing partner for you? Um, really, 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 she was really, really smart. And uh, she was a woman. There you, so you, you just get rid of the testosterone side, or it, it's balanced out by the estrogen. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's it made the work better. It was the synergy of two. Uh, it is true it's this, that two, one plus one is three on, on certain occasions. And... We helped each other, uh, and it lasted 19, 20 years, which is amazing. Most marriages don't last that long. And then coming towards the end of Saturday Night Live, you, you've been, you were constantly clashing with Dick Abersall. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what was the, what was the clashes over? Oh gosh, over over everything. You know, content, creative control, uh, just uh, you know how people were treated, the, the decency. And in retrospect, I look back and I go, you know what, Dick. Even as much as we fought, Dick managed to keep that show going for five years when Lauren had given up on it, and. Uh, and had made it successful and kept it going and and did good work. And, you know, then Lauren got to waltz back in and take it over again. Um, and, you know, those years have always sort of been overlooked. Our, our episodes were never rerun because Lauren would, couldn't make any money on them. But uh, the... Which uh, is taking money out of your pocket because yeah. you're not getting any residuals. Yeah, I thought there'd be reruns and... Uh, that would be your annuity. Yeah, my annuity and, you know... Pay, pay for the private school for the kids. Poor bastards. Had to go now, to my research has said school. that you actually quit over a dispute with producers. No, no. I quit once. And actually, John Belushi and John and Judy, his wife, Judy Jacqueline, sweet Judy, uh, said, we'll, we'll take you to the airport. And so they picked me up in a car. And instead, they took me to a shrink on 61st Street. And I said, what is it? You know, I said, I said, and John and Judy said, if you want to quit this show... You're crazy uh, because you have a chance to be, you know, on the airwaves doing your comedy and reaching out to people and you have something to say and you're not going to get a chance to say it if you go back to Chicago. So they took me to a shrink who I I saw for the next three years who kept me healthy enough to keep doing the show. And it was the sweetest, lovely thing. John should have gone to the shrink. Uh, 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 along with me, because a year later, John was dead, and it was the most horrifying thing that uh, that happened to me, uh, that happened, happened to the world, my God. Um, well, this is almost 30 years ago, right? Oh, is, hello, it's 35 years 35. ago. And as you're it telling was, me the story, you're still choked up about it. March 5th, 1982. And uh, John died at age 32. He's now been dead 35 years. He's been dead longer than he was alive. Uh, and uh, I just kind of wish he could be here now. And uh, I'm really, you know, it's a, the world is a sadder place that he's not. He, um, he was remember, wonderful. Yeah. Do you remember the day that you heard about it? That oh, he died? Yeah. I was, at, I was in New York. I, I went into the, the Saturday Night Live offices to see what I could do. You know, uh, walked into an office, one of the producers was snorting coke. I'm like... This is beautiful. I mean, this is, you know, maybe it's time to stop, guys, you know. Um, the, it, was, uh, it was horrible. I just came in to see how I could t- contact, try to get a hold of Jim, let him know. Uh, just wanted to get the family taken care of before uh, all the press. And uh, it, was, it was a horrible day, just a horrible, horrible day. Um, you're also well known for playing characters like... Uh, Carl Sweetchuck in the Police Academy movies. And I love the story you tell about how you got that part and, and when you were in Greece. Oh, I, I had um, uh, left, let's say, left Saturday Night Live and married my, my lovely wife, Marcia. Now, did you know what you were going to do after that? No, I was going to be a screenwriter. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was working on the script uh, with Sexual Perversity in Chicago, uh, which became a movie called About Last Night which Denise and I wrote 13 different drafts of before it got made. Um, so I knew I was going back to Chicago. And that was the great thing about being a screenwriter is I didn't have to go to L.A. I really didn't want to. My wife didn't want to. So I got to live in Chicago because I could type. And so we were on a honeymoon in Greece. Nobody knew where we were. It was just totally private, except my sister knew the island we were on. And she called around to all the different guest houses, a little island called Hydra where Harold Ramis used to go. Uh, it's an island with no motorized vehicles. It only has donkeys. And it was like so beautiful and rustic. Somehow my sister, who had, had come from Australia and hired her, she was working for me, found me at a pension and said, there's these guys that want you to do a day's work on this movie called Police Academy 2. And, uh, and I said, okay. Uh, you know, it, it, Barry Blaustein and David Shepard. And I went, okay, yeah, when I get back, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, and my wife literally said to me, why would you take a day's work in Los Angeles um, 
and I said, well, they are friends, and, you know, you never know. You just, friends do favors for friends, and, uh, you know, I like those guys, and so went out, shot that day, when I got back home, shot that one day, that day the director, uh, Jim Signorelli, got fired, and Jerry Paris got hired as the new director. He looked at the footage and says, I hate this stuff. Uh, uh, I like the gang leader, who was Bob Goldthwaite, and the old guy in the lamp store. That was me. And he said, well, he was only here for the day. I said, well, keep him around. So six weeks later, I was still there, and Bob, Bob and I would come into work in, in the morning, and Jerry Paris would say, hey, Bob, Tim, what do you want to do today? And Jerry Pierce was the Jerry director. Jerry Pierce was the director, uh, who was, you know, um, you he was on Jerry Milley and the Big Van Dyke He was a recurring character. Recurring character. He directed a lot of the um, Happy Days. Happy Days, and... yeah, yeah. And he would just ended up, you know, giving us carte blanche, going, "What do you want to? You know, we're in a supermarket. What do you want to do? Well, how about if we hide Tim in the lettuces and and I find him there and under a head of lettuce and we just." Every day we'd make this shit up, and it was so much fun, and it was like a party. And then um, we got hired to do a couple more, and so uh, and Bob and I became really great friends. And he's a terrific director now. And, and that turned out to be like a huge payday for you, right? It was. It was really good payday. Uh, it was when you at least expect it. And so you now when I, I give like lectures to classes to people, I say when somebody wants you to do a day's work, show up. Because it could work into like the biggest payday of your life. You never know when you least expect it. You're, you know. Well, the interesting thing about you know your story is with Saturday Night Live. You didn't think you, you were you were gonna you you were just going there to meet with Dick Eppersall as a meeting because you were gonna you were you were gonna help him out. Yeah. And then this, you were going to help these people out or doing it as a favor. It was no big deal. What is the lesson there? For the lesson there is it, it is a community and. When somebody asks for a favor, you do it. You show up. Somebody wants you to work on their uh, video, their you know YouTube video, their play. They're you know they're doing a little you know, bit. Show up. Do it. You do those favors. And look, if only one in ten boomerangs back to you, that's work. You know, if you get one paid gig out of it, you you just it's this community. No job is too small. You don't say, no, I can't do that. I, that's not a big enough thing for me. I'm not getting enough focus. I'm not getting enough attention. It's not paying enough. Ah, fuck it. Just show up. Do it. And it just begets more work. And you, you become the, the one. Somebody go, oh, I, got you. I owe him a favor. Or, you know, I got a paying gig now. Throw a few bucks his way. It's just, um, it's a community. And then also, when you're good, when you're fun to work with, you're good company, you're in good spirits, and you're not whining and complaining, they want, that's what they want on a set. That's what they want in a company if you're on tour. You, when you're a team player and you're fun to work with, it makes a difference. Well, the other thing that, because I've gotten to work with you before we did that uh, improv festival at Navy Pier, you are so nice to people that come up to you and say, oh, Saturday Night Live or Police Academy. And you always take time. You're, you're very personable and stuff like that. The, the fans aren't going to give you work. Why, why are you like that? Uh, because I could just as easily be that person in the audience, you know, coming up to ask somebody for an autograph or to say hello or whatever. It's just, you, you, it, there's a quote by Einstein that the, the thing that guided his life were, you know, kindness and beauty and just, just the end of your life. I should have been nicer to people, you know. People come to that. It's just, it's, it's easier to be nice to people than to be a dick, like, you know. In the last few years, you've toured with the national touring production of Wicked mm -hmm. and made your Broadway de de debut in An Act of God. What was, what was it like it's in your 60s? You're now touring with Wicked. You know, it's just... Um, there's certain people out there, I mean, it would drive them crazy to know that... I didn't audition for Second City. You know how hard it is to get into Second City now? I'd actually never auditioned. I got plucked out of the workshop. I in three classes, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't audition for Saturday Night Live. You know, now you have to go in and do characters and stuff. And they'll call people back three or four times oh, yeah, to yeah. New York to audition. Yeah. Somebody came and saw me. I got hired without auditioning for either of those jobs. 
I backed into a, a screenwriting career uh, that, it, you know, it's really hard to get. And uh, my wife had done Broadway shows and musicals for years. She did five Broadway shows. She was always asking me to do a musical. So a couple of years ago, I did my first musical, Hairspray. One song and a, and a half a dance. And I had so much fun. And then a year after that, I got my second musical, which was the national tour of Wicked, which is a, it's a crazy, I mean, it's a really plum job. And it ended up, I ended up touring with them for 16 months and playing the Wizard of Oz, which was really fun. And we ended with a, a three month run at the Pantages Theater, got to visit all my LA friends. Then the guy who directed Wicked was a guy named Joe Mantello. And he came in to, and it was 12 years ago, Joe Mantel, the, the most famous New York director, came to see the show, and um, afterwards he said, said to me, you kicked ass as the wizard. And I was like, yeah, I, he's blowing smoke, whatever. You don't take comments, compliments well. No, you. no, I don't take compliments When people well. say that, you just think they're full of shit? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so I told my wife, hey, Joe Mantel said I kicked ass as the wizard. Yeah, blah, blah. So... Uh, two weeks later, I got hired to do Joe Mantello's new show in New York. It was an act of God, uh, starring um, um, Jim Parsons. From? Uh, the Big Bang Theory. He was God, and there were two angels, myself and Chris Fitzgerald. And uh, we got, did a four-month run at Studio 54, the, <laughs> the disco that I'd gone to with for Eddie Murphy's 21st birthday. It's now a fabulous theater. They just finished Cabaret. And uh, I had a, a wonderful time in New York doing my first Broadway show at age 65, a month after I picked up my Medicare card. What was opening night like for you? What do you remember? <laughs> opening... Are you nervous? Come on. Was I nervous? Yeah. Okay. We had nine days rehearsal. I flew into New York. Ten days later, we opened the show. This is a thousand-seat theater. Our, it was our first full run-through of the show. We'd never run it through one time. Our first run-through was in front of an entire audience. And I, we were all shitting our pants. And it, the bizarre thing was it killed. Mostly because Jim Parsons was freaking brilliant in the role. He's, you know, it's God. He, he's a wonderful God. A wonderful actor, a wonderful human. So... It was it was a treat. It was really really fun. Um, and uh, then you know, uh, for someone who's never considered himself an actor, you seem to make a great living now through acting. What do you consider yourself today? Um, I always put down writer performer. I put the writer first, and then I put actor. Um, I'm actually I haven't written anything in the. Um, my God, over seven years. And, but I still think it's classier to say writer-performer than, you know. Do you have some shame about being an actor? Because I do. I feel like it. Yes. You, yeah. Yes, because it's easy money. Yeah. <laughs> that movie that I wrote for Daddy Ninja. Right. It's easy money. It's just, I, okay, I still get residual checks for Police Academy, which was 30s, you know, years ago. And not, they're not very big. Couple Anymore. hundred bucks? Yeah. No, no, no. Sometimes, sometimes it's 18 bucks. Right. Sometimes, okay. <laughs> sometimes a couple hundred bucks. But they used to be really good. But still, any, any time any check of any amount arrives in my mailbox, I don't care if it's $12. It's like, shit, I didn't do anything for that. I wasn't expecting to get this today. There's nothing so cheery as a residual check of any amount. So, so when you're on a set or you're, you're doing a show and, and there's younger actors that are bitching about being an actor, what, 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 do you ever pull them aside? And of course I do. And okay. I, 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 very gently, I very gently point out to them, like, what are, you, what are you whining about? What are you complaining about? You know, how, much, you know, how much are you making today for this, you know, this cushy gig where there's no heavy lifting involved? Uh, you know, you know, why not turn it into a little party? I mean, you're having a great time. You get to tell people you're in a show and, you know, <laughs> your parents will be impressed. It's like, shut up and enjoy it. You know, it's, it's it, it, listen, show people are so much fun to hang with. I mean, have, there's nothing like a day on a set, you know, you got craft service, you got free food. Hey, it's, a, it's, it's fun. So when you did Wicked and you did Active God, are you still the den mother? 
Yeah. Well, there's only a cast of three there. So well, that's pretty, easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, certainly on, on Wicked, I had, uh, you know, young people coming to me for advice, you know, personal advice, career advice, health advice. And plus, I was a traveling pharmacopoeia. I was always had, I had dental floss and, you know. You were like you know, Walgreens. Yeah, I had the, I'm a traveling Walgreens. You know, you need some leave, I got it, you know. <laughs> The um, ones and lotions and tinctures, I have them all. So, and you've done so much in your career. What is left for you? What would you still like to do? Opera. No, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that because then I'll, I'll wind up in one. Well, yeah, and you don't even have to try. Yeah. You, know, you just have to walk by you know, the, you know, the opera theater and they'll, they'll hire you. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have a... Oh, my gosh, it's almost 11. Well, we, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, no, it's odd because I get a call from my agent that there was an 11.30 audition if I could make it in time. So, well, you'll make it I, in time. Where I is it? I probably won't. I'll be a little late. Uh, it's at O'Connor downtown. Okay. Uh, but then at 4 o'clock, I have an audition for Chicago PD uh, as a judge. So I'm going to give that a shot. So, you know, I'm just, my, you know, my hat's still in the ring. Um, and just whatever comes along. But I'm determined to stay in Chicago, and I love it here. You don't regret. I mean, there was opportunities, certainly after Saturday Night Live and the success of About Last Night the, and, and uh, Police Academy, that you could have moved to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, and I, it certainly would have helped. I mean, either writing career or performing career. But um, it, neither my wife nor I wanted to move there and live there. We both spent time there. And I just did, you know, Pantages. I did... I just did three months in L.A. And it was really the only time I ever spent time in L.A. I, and it was great to see all my old friends again. Couldn't wait to leave. Couldn't wait to get back home to Chicago and, uh, you know, fly into O'Hare and go pick up my, my baggage at the carousel with all the other dumpy people that aren't wearing spandex and glitter and uh, just, uh, just feel like I'm home. We've got to wrap this up. One question we ask... Uh, on the podcast, to everybody, it's the same question. What piece of advice would you give to somebody starting out in improv today? I would say that you have to look at, arrow, at, at, at improvisation as one arrow in your quiver. Uh, I don't think it's the end-all and be-all of what you do. There's a lot of other things that you can do. Write, direct, um, uh, Stand up. Uh, the, there's many, many hats that you can wear in the business, um, and it's good to have other abilities and tools. So just don't think of it. I mean, not everybody's going to be TJ and Dave. Those guys are the world's best. You know, that slot's already taken. You know, it's, I don't think that improv is the end all and be all, it's just one one building block to who you want to be as a, uh, as a performer and a writer. And just don't put all your eggs in that basket. It's a really fun basket. It's really tempting. But you got to move on someday. Tim Kazarinski, thank you for being our guest. Uh, do you have an, uh, some dental floss? I actually do. Great. All right. <laughs> and there you have it, another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Tim Kazarinski. And I'd never heard that story that he only t took three improv classes and got hired at Second City. It's, he's had an amazing, amazing career. Uh, it just seems like doors just keep opening for him. Uh, I also want to thank my producer here, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Uh, also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes and workshops, as well as my improv blog and books, please go to my website, jimmycorain.com. We're also taking over uh, social media, and you know, uh, if you're familiar with this, we're on Facebook, so go to our Improv Nerd page and like us, because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Uh, then follow us on Twitter, improv underscore nerd, and then go to our wonderful YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. We are part of feralaudio.com and all their innovative and hilarious podcasts. People like... Chelsea Peretti, Steve Agee, Todd Berry, Dan Harmon, Jimmy Corain, 
I got that one in at the end. So check that out, feralaudio.com. I'd like to thank both our sponsors today, the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas, and the Baltimore Improv Festival in Baltimore. And, of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.